Thursday edition of Locked On NBA, Lock and Golliver. Every Thursday for you on Locked On NBA. Thanks to the crew that carried the week. Josh Lloyd every Monday with the local experts on the biggest stories. Wes and David for you on Tuesdays with John and Jake on Wednesdays and tomorrow. The great combination of woe and woe. Anthony and Adam, last week's Locked on NBA Friday show was hysterical. All right, Ben Golliver joins us now. And uh, Ben, we probably should start with the Lakers blowing out the Warriors. We probably should start with Russell Westbrook taking shots at Patrick Beverly. But let's talk about the future. John Morant last night in a Memphis-Charlotte game, just because it's cool to talk about Memphis-Charlotte. Okay, nobody's doing that. 23 points, 11 assists, 10 of 15 from the field. And with the game on the line, he just went one-on-one to the rack and finished in a way that maybe only five or six, seven other guys in the NBA could finish. Right, through three or four different defenders, too, right? Just to add to the degree of difficulty. He's having a really kind of sneaky, nice rookie season. I think there's going to be some discussion about how Memphis is handling his minutes. They're not running up the minute total. They're not necessarily even playing him every game. They're even starting kind of a load management thing for him right off the gate. Clearly, they know they're not going to be a winning franchise this season, so I think they're trying to take the – the long-term approach, but he's a special talent. I think a lot of analysts compared him to like Derrick Rose. You know, he, when he was coming up during the pre-draft process, you see the explosive bounce off the dribble, the craftiness. I love that he goes left and right. Uh, he's, he's willing to try to seek out and finish uh, in the in-between game with floaters, teardrops. Uh, he doesn't mind uh, a little bit of contact, but he's also very savvy about avoiding it, getting himself into really good positions in the deep paint, breaking defenses down, uh, finding, you know, his shooters potentially. And, and, of course, he's not wired as a selfish player. I mean, he's looking to make plays both for himself and for his teammates, almost in equal measure. So I think it was a nice taste of what's to come for John Moran and Memphis last night. Uh, I think they've got something pretty special down there. Uh, what I love about him is, the, and, and this is maybe intuitively obvious, is he can get to the rim. And you know what? You can te- He doesn't have a great mid-range game yet. His next game is against Rudy Gobert and the Jazz. He'll be interested to see if he can get to the rim. But that doesn't matter. Like, if you can get to the rim, a la Derrick Rose in his prime, you can learn the other aspects of things. But there are guys that simply can't get to the rim. That's When you can't get to the rim, that's pretty hard to learn. You can learn how to hit a pull-up jumper. You can learn how to pick your spots. Uh, he has a natural ability and a wiggle, uh, a, a dribble that he can go right, left, in, out, in the same dribble uh, that is really special in his ability to get from one spot to another and almost get wherever he wants on the floor. So he's got a great handle. I mean, no, he's, he's under control with the ball, you know, basically at all times. And then he's also just very, very slippery too, right? And he's got the full bag of tricks. So it's, it's a nightmare one-on-one cover uh, for any perimeter defender. I mean, he's going to put a lot of pressure on you and just sort of wear you down over the course of the game. Uh, because he's pretty relentless. And then, like you're saying, he can get to the basket. He can finish in the basket area, too. You know, and some of that is just the athleticism, being able to you know, leap and soar over a lot of defenders, uh, especially if teams are playing a little bit smaller. Uh, so for him, uh, I think uh, you know, he's up there in this conversation of like young, modern, prototype point guards. I think Trey Young's probably at the top of the class right now, uh, if you're looking at kind of like you know, pure point guards, just because of his shooting ability, how he stretches things and also just his outstanding passing ability. But when we're saying, like, who's going to be this next generation of young point guards? You know, John Morant and his style of play, to me, it fits really well in a spread offense, and it's going to, you know, just carry them 
uh, and their whole franchise really here for the next five to ten years. All right, well, he didn't play last night, but you brought up his name. What is your thought on what you're seeing out of Trey Young so far this year? Oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this weekend we get the back-to-back in L.A. Uh, with Trey Young on Saturday and Trey Young on Sunday. And it's, to me, it's appointment viewing. Uh, he is a player who I was not ready to write off early in his rookie season. I knew it was going to be a little bit of a struggle for him as he got used to just the NBA, you know, night-to-night expectations of consistency. Uh, but you can see, you can see the sh- uh, shooting ability and also just the feel and command of the offense throughout his college tenure. You could just see it, and that's what the NBA game is built on right now. Uh, so I expected he was eventually going to figure it out. He did down the stretch of last season. Now, over the summer, when he was at USA Basketball Minicamp, one of my biggest takeaways from that whole camp experience was, how is Trey Young not on this team? Why is this guy not uh, you know, the starting point guard? Uh, because he was looking so good during uh, you know, their five-on-five scrimmages in Las Vegas. He just seemed like he had a real calm and poise about him. Uh, and he was just you know, tough for guys to stay in front of as well. He has hit the ground running here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the confidence is off the charts. I mean, you know, telling, you know, shushing the benches. Uh, the opposing benches, shushing the crowd, staring people down as he's hitting these three-pointers. Uh, not a lot of people thought it was going to come this quickly for him, uh, and you love to see it. I did his summer league in Salt Lake City for NBA TV. He was awful. I mean awful. So bad that, like, you never take summer league seriously, and he was so bad you're like, uh-oh. And Lloyd Pierce was like, he'll be fine, he'll be fine, and certainly uh, he has he has been fine. All right, let's get to uh, the game you were at last night. The Warriors aren't much of anything. They're actually the team that makes everyone feel good. The Jazz went into Golden State with an offense ranked in the 20th in their low 20s, and now they're ranked better. The Warriors walked, uh, the Lakers walked in there with an offense that was not clicking, and now they're ranked better. So the Warriors have become everybody's elixir. But let's talk about the Lakers. They are the best record in the Western Conference. They have one of the elite defenses. Uh, what's your feeling on what you're seeing out of Lakers? Well, yeah, real quick on the Warriors. They make everybody else feel better, and they make you, as you're watching them, feel so sad and so much worse. You know, like Steve Kerr last night, his line was, for years we've had this mantra where we can, if we can get three stops in a row, you know, that's the, the key to our defense. And then he just kind of like shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't think we got three stops in a row all night against the Lakers. Uh, and that pretty much sums it up. I mean, they are in a, a very, very tough spot. Uh, even with guys like D'Angelo Russell and uh, uh, and Draymond Green playing, they just look like you know a, a borderline NBA team a lot of the time. Now, in terms of the Lakers, uh, it was a much-needed win for them in the sense that it was coming kind of on a back-to-back. Anthony Davis was resting, and LeBron only had to play something like 26 minutes. Uh, it just came very easily for them. So, to me, that was like the very best-case scenario for them, uh, given the way their week and their schedule played out. Now, I think uh, overall the biggest story about the Lakers has been their defense being better than expected. Coming into this season, I thought that was a real question. I thought it was going to be a, just a gigantic load on Anthony Davis to turn them uh, into a you know quality defense, but the effort level has been there from LeBron like it wasn't really at any time uh, last season uh, and even some previous regular seasons. Uh, you, you've got some other guys, whether it's Danny Green, uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, you know, playing, you know, impactful, effective defense. I think Alex Caruso has been a nice find for them, uh, being, you know, a two-way contributor and, and understanding his role. Uh, and then they've also gotten, you know, better than expected minutes from Dwight Howard. So it's coming from a little bit of everywhere, which is not what I expected. I thought it was going to have to just be the Anthony Davis show on defense for them. Uh, but to me, that's sort of been their early season identity. 
uh, and it's carried them to a, a really good record and a strong start. Alex Caruso hadn't played early at all in the season. Then the second half against Utah, he starts at point guard, and that's when that defense clicked in. Caruso, according to plus minus, is the best, most impactful defensive player on that team, and it makes sense. A 6'6 point guard, couple that with the tenacity of Avery Bradley, with the length of LeBron, with the length of Anthony Davis, and then with either Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee playing the center minutes, that is an incredibly long basketball team. And, you know, for all the talk of the 76ers length and all the other things, this team's almost as long as that. Now, with Caruso at the point, and the change from having him compared to a Quinn Cook or a Troy Daniels on the floor is dramatic. No, I'm glad you mentioned the Sixers comparison. It's also kind of the same deal. Like we all thought the Clippers were going to be long and crazy athletic and just swallowing up opponents to start the season. And that's sort of been the Lakers MO. And, you know, Steve Kerr has said this repeatedly because the Lakers had to play the Warriors four times during the preseason, but he's just like, those guys are just huge. And he said it again last night. They're huge. Even without Anthony Davis out there, uh, they just kind of impose a certain style of play on their opponents. And then also, you know, guys like JaVale McGee offensively could just go crazy if, if they're playing undersized teams because he's just feasting on lobs all day long. Uh, and he's just kind of, you know, able to stick pretty tightly into his role. So dominating the glass, you know, dominating the basket area in terms of high percentage shots, and then also just kind of controlling the game flow on defense has sort of been the Lakers MO here. He's Ben Golliver, Washington Post, National NBA writer. I'm David Locke. It's Locke and Golliver, Thursdays on Locked on NBA. We'll talk more about those Clippers when we continue. They played up with the Rockets last night in a feisty one. We'll look at that, and I'm consistent. I think the Clippers have a Lou Williams problem. I'll explain when we continue. It is Locked on NBA. Ben, no one's with me on this one, and I want to talk about the game last night, but you were, we were just talking about the f- long Clippers defense and things of that nature. As Paul George returns tonight, I am so curious to watch what they do with Lou Williams. The defense is 10 points worse per 100 possessions with him on the floor. Teams just hunt him out. He's an incredible scorer, but he's 30-plus years old on the defensive end, and they don't need his scoring once Paul George is back. I am really interested to see how this Clipper team, now that it's at full strength with Paul George returning tonight, plays and uses Lou Williams. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer because Landry Shaman had a high ankle sprain, I think, earlier this week, so he's going to miss a little bit of time. And I think that relieves just a little bit of the logjam in terms of, like, you know, rotations and, you know, setting your lineups. Because to me, if I was closing games, that's probably one of the guys that I go to, um, you know, in place of a, a Lou Williams. And so now it could be possible where they just have a fifth spot open and they decide to keep going with Lou Williams. Uh, it's not just the defensive uh, you know, issue, though. I, I think with him, offensively, the Clippers have turned everything over to, to Kawhi Leonard in late-game situations, right? I mean, he's making a, a bulk of the decisions. He's having the ball in his hands. He's taking a lot of the big shots. Uh, if he's not taking it, you know, it, it's kind of th- their offense is being set up from sort of his isolations a, a lot of times. And so – you're marginalizing what Lou Williams's value is to you late in games if he's not the ball handler, if he's not running pick and rolls, if he's not trying to just create off the dribble. And uh, you know, Doc Rivers has conceded this point uh, to a degree. He said, "Look, we're still trying to figure out the right balance between a player like Lou Williams uh, and Kawhi Leonard." To me, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of tension. I think the Clippers have pretty much accepted that they are Kawhi's team. They go as he goes, and they understand he gets to have the ball in these moments. He's the proven champion. Um, but I do think that uh, you know some of these players who help the Clippers be in position to go recruit a Kawhi Leonard uh, are maybe now paying the price for it or will pay the price for it here 
as the rest of the season goes forward in terms of their own roles. Last night, pretty impressive by the Rockets. They blast them early, 31-15 at the end of one. James Harden has 47, and the Rockets are showing some signs of playing defense, which, frankly, if they start to do that, this team gets very real very fast. If you just look at them since the first of the month, some of those defensive numbers, it's, you know, we're talking obviously very, very small sample sizes here, but some of those defensive numbers look a lot better than they did earlier in the year when they were just an absolute sieve. Now, all of a sudden, if you look at Houston in the last, since whatever that is, last seven games are the seventh best defense in the NBA. Yeah, I looked at that game last night. It just seemed like Houston was on a different effort level and desire level than the Clippers were. And I think this is something to monitor with the Clippers, not only because They've got Kawhi on managed minutes and, and load management, you know, taking certain games off. But Paul George will be coming back, and I'm sure they're going to be taking it easy with him too. You still have to play the games, right? Like, you still have to go out there and, uh, and compete. And if you're going to be a title contender, like, you need to stack up, uh, you know, victories, you know, pretty consistently. I thought the Clippers got off to a, a good start this season uh, before Paul George's return. Uh, not a great start. Um, but I, to me, they're not like on that you know championship level where they can just sort of handle you know cruise control mode for weeks at a time and expect to really have a, a top spot uh, in the Western Conference standings. Uh, they they still have stuff to prove, I guess, is what I'm saying. And so uh, you see a game like that against Houston. Uh, I do think maybe they got pushed or exposed a little bit in terms of how good they they thought they were, or you know, with their 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 just you know fourth gear approach to the regular season. All right, we've just decided that, I mean, Kawhi Leonard's amazing, and we're talking about Jordan-esque and all these kind of things. Their offense is terrible right now. I mean, like, bona fide terrible. Their last five games, their effective field goal percentage is 45%. Well, that's sort of what I'm hinting at. I mean, Kawhi, he coasts, man. Like, there's there's games where he doesn't really start playing until there's four minutes left in the fourth quarter, right? He's just sort of biding his time, trying to keep it close. Um, And I think that that is a double-edged sword, right? It's good because you're not running up the miles and you know he's going to be able to step it up when it matters, but it's bad because you've got all these other players who are impacted uh, in that situation who either are still trying to figure out how to play with him and therefore deferring, or you know, at some point they're probably going to try to step up and do a little bit more and, and maybe take their offense in, in directions they're not prepared to go. I do also think, though, let's not forget about Paul George's offensive value, right? Like we talk about him as this two-way player, this defensive uh, you know, uh, mastermind out there on the perimeter, you know, with the steals and the deflections. He's a very skilled shot creator, very skilled pure scorer, a strong shooter who could really help, uh, you know, relieve pressure, uh, you know, when he's playing either with Kawhi Leonard uh, or with Lou Williams as a primary ball handler. I mean, you have to hug tight to Paul George. That's going to really uh, impact their offense uh, in a big time way. So I think their offensive rating is bound to improve here, say, over the next month or so. Uh, but it hasn't been as seamless as they probably hoped or expected. Kawhi Leonard's taking 59% of his shots in the mid-range. He's hitting 45% of those shots, which is good for the league, but it's only .9 points per shot. He's only going to the rim 17% of his shots. Are we okay with this? Like I said, it's a coasting uh, thing, and and he's never been a huge guy going to the rim. You know, I think we know what he likes to do, but I think the bigger story from those numbers, Locke, is just that, the Clippers have sort of turned everything over to Kawhi, right? It's, it's, it reminds me a little bit, honestly, of how the Thunder handled Russell Westbrook for all those years, where it's like it's your franchise, whatever you want to do, uh, we're catering this thing to you. You see it with the load management program. You see it with his post-game 
uh, you know, treatment plan where sometimes he's getting treatment for an hour after the game before he even does his media comments. Uh, you see it with how they kind of protect him from a lot of uh, you know, media obligations, like he does press conferences uh, rather than, you know, doing it in the locker room. Uh, they just cater to him. You know, there, there's no question about it. They put on the full recruiting press for, you know, like basically an entire season to get him. Now that they've got him, they want to be as you know, happy as possible and they're willing to live and die with Kawhi kind of no matter what. And I do think that at this stage of his career, given that he's still, you know, dealing with it to some degree or another an injury that has lasted for multiple years now, multiple seasons, uh, you know, you're going to have to, uh, you know, suffer through some turbulence during regular seasons. And, and even Nick Nurse said this recently, uh, you know, the Toronto Raptors coach, he's like, look, uh, I could tell Kawhi wasn't, you know, going as hard as possible at times last season, and I, I thought the season would either pick up because he stepped it all the way up, or he would just kind of cruise on out of town. And obviously, during the playoffs, you know, Kawhi stepped it up, and I think that's what the Clippers are expecting too. James Harden, we wondered what the impact of Russell Westbrook would be on him. It he's the exact same. Last night he had forty-seven, six and seven, but for the season, he's exactly the same as he was a year ago. It's incredible. So he is, it's good to see him back a little bit because he started slow. I know their front office, Daryl Morey, and their coach, Mike D'Antoni, were just kind of like telling everybody to chill out for the first two weeks of the season. I thought that was the right message. Uh, Harden, I'm not sure sort of on a night-to-night basis from a regular season standpoint, there's really a solution or an answer for him. Um, but, you know, we've seen, you know, that uh, that dynamic changes in the playoffs, especially against the elite defenses. And so uh, I get excited every time I watch Harden. I enjoy watching him more, I think, than the average viewer does. His tricks and, you know, some of the nonsense stuff where, you know, he's falling all over with Patrick Beverly and stuff like that. It just doesn't bother me. You know, I like the craft and, and how he's able to get to his shots and just his shot-making ability. Um, but I think that for him, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times, right? Like, we still are in a situation where, like, there's not going to be any real judgment of Harden until we get to the playoffs. Uh, and I'm still skeptical that his pairing with Westbrook's going to work in the postseason. The last five games, 44, 36, 42, 39, 47. Like, it's crazy. Clockwork. No. Yeah, no, it's clockwork. And I think that he, you know, frankly, people were pretty slow to get on to James Harden. He has been one of the NBA's greatest scorers of all time for like five straight solid seasons. Wait, wait, night I, in and night out. Let me interrupt you. I've made the following comment. He's the greatest scorer that's under seven feet in the history of the game. Woo! Uh, I have a hard time with, with any with any Mike uh, with any Mike comparisons. I'm always going to Mike, but I think he's kind of like right there. I mean, to me, if we're talking in a vacuum, it's guys like Jordan. Durant, uh, and Harden. I mean, that's pretty much the conversation. And if you're saying who's doing it consistently with the burden and, you know, with the, the games played and the mileage and the minutes, uh, you know, there are basically, I mean, even Durant gets squeezed out of that conversation at that point. It basically comes down to Jordan or Harden. I mean, I, I, like I got like, I'm not saying he's a better player than Jordan. I do think he's a better scorer than Jordan. I really do. Um, I just, well, uh, I mean, frankly, I mean, to me, here's the, it, best the whole way. argument comes down to like, can you put Mike in a, in the modern era? And then what is he able to do? Certainly. Right. Like that, that, because there's no question Harden's a more lethal three point shooter. I think he's a better distributor with the ball in his hands. Uh, I think that he probably has the benefit of greater craft in terms of getting to, uh, you know, various spots like his handle, uh, is better. 
Uh, I just wonder, like, if, if we turned young Jordan especially loose in the modern era, that could look crazy from a number standpoint. And, you know, it could have also just influenced how he developed and evolved his own game. He's Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. You can get his newsletter each and every Monday by doing what, Ben? Yeah, just go to my Twitter. There's a link there uh, every every week. I think this week's, uh, you know, we, we got into the Dion Waiters experience. But, uh, you know, the topics vary every single week, something for everybody. We'll come back. Uh, I'll give my trump card on the James Harden argument uh, with a little tongue in cheek. And then we'll touch on a few other things that are going on in the NBA, including maybe maybe the final domino has fallen on one aspect of college basketball and the NBA. Uh, as we continue with Thursday edition of Locked on NBA, it's Lock and Golliver every Thursday on Locked on NBA. If you're looking to grab a quick meal, DoorDash will do it for you. Favorite restaurants come to you at DoorDash right now. Our listeners get $5 off their first order, $15 or more. When you download the DoorDash app, enter the promo code Locked On. Here's my quick James Harden comment. Milwaukee and Utah guard James Harden from behind and they're right. And when they've done, when that is the, when that, when you've reached that point, you've broken the game. Like it is the correct decision to guard James Harden from behind so he can't take a step back and can't take a three. And when the game, either the rules are wrong or the game is wrong when that's the case and Harden's busted it. Well, just remember, okay, the Detroit Pistons guarded Jordan with two-by-fours and baseball bats, all right? So uh, <laughs> the, the Jordan rules and the Harden rules are, are certainly both, uh, you know, an indication of just absolute greatness. Um, you know, Harden is going to be really fascinating to me. Like, how do you think his legacy goes, right? Will he be appreciated more in 10 to 15, 20 years once the stat guys really go back and look at his numbers and kind of shape his conversation a little bit differently than it is right now, where I think so much focuses on meaningless stuff, like, you know, the the interactions with a player like Beverly, or oh, he, all he does is, like, you know, sell the referees on fouls that aren't really fouls, and he chokes in the playoffs. I feel like a lot of the conversation around Harden is on the wrong topics right now. I wonder if maybe he will age a little bit better than we expect. I wish he had, I wish his playoff runs didn't always run into the best team that may have ever been put together. Like I, I just, I'm, un, <laughs> right. I'm uncomfortable with the idea that he choked in the playoffs considering who he was playing. Um, but we'll see. Maybe, no, I agree hundred percent. I'm not saying that's how I feel. I just think that like, that is a narrative that he is just constantly shadowed by. And I wonder if people, you know, 10 years from now, if they just sort of appreciate the Warriors for how great they were, and Harden kind of maybe gets more of a pass than he does currently, and then people go back and say, you know, he averaged like 36, 37 points a game. That's pretty ridiculous. And uh, and maybe that's more where uh, Harden, sort of the the legend, winds up uh, winds up landing. Uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves, 129. The San Antonio Spurs, 114. Two takeaways in this one. The Spurs defense looked awful. Um, that's a different side note. Point guard Andrew Wiggins is pretty good. 30 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists last night. Uh, has Ryan Saunders unlocked Andrew Wiggins after all these years? Man, I am very torn here because I love to see Andrew Wiggins play like this. I mean, this is what we've all been waiting years and years and years for, but it's that classic thing of like, is this fool's gold or can we really believe it? Um, he's been on, I would say the best run of his career. The last five games, I didn't see it coming whatsoever. I think, uh, it is it starts to really get your wheels turning. And this is a great example because you have this Spurs team that's kind of like stuck in the mud, right? Like 
They're they're a little bit below 500 right now. They're not necessarily lighting the world on fire. If they miss the playoffs this season, it wouldn't necessarily surprise you. And with Minnesota going and just kind of you know laying the wood to them a little bit, now all these things seem possible. It's like oh, it, you know Towns isn't just by himself up in Minnesota. Now he's legit got some help uh, with a player like Andrew Wiggins. Now they could be a playoff team. Uh, now they potentially can get that momentum back from the whole Jimmy Butler experience where they lost so much momentum and set themselves back multiple years uh, with the Tom Thibodeau era. I mean, all of these narratives start to cook if Andrew Wiggins is a real player night in and night out. And so I guess I'm just kind of guarding my heart from it. You know, it's like you, you don't want to get ahead of yourself here uh, because of, of his long track record over the last, like, you know, three, four years of uh, not necessarily being a guy who you can completely count on to do it. Well, he is notorious for the zero rebound, zero assist night. So that's the one to keep an eye on is whether he avoids that night along the way. Uh, the Spurs lack of shooting threes is, is, is absurd. Like I got it that DeRozan and Aldridge aren't going to shoot him, but like DeJounte Murray and Derek White played 48 minutes combined and did not take a three last night. Like at some point taking 17 of 90 shots in 2019 as three point shots is criminal. And this is like a hundred percent right now. T- and, like it's, and we are giving up two 40 point quarters. It's like, all right, now what, you know, like, okay, you're, you're just not even going to be competitive in a game like that. If you're shooting two. And frankly, it's not like their points in the paint were even last night. It's not like they're like doing something else special. So I really don't, I really don't get it uh, to their credit. This is like, I heard this from the Minnesota TV crew today is like the 66th day in 15 years that they're below 500. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, the other thing I'd say about this game, Rudy Gay tried to test Carl Anthony Towns a little bit. They got into a, a scrape. I think he might have been upset about some swinging elbows or something like that. Towns kind of shot back with some more ferocity. It reminded me a little bit of the uh, of the episode earlier this season with Joel Embiid. I think Towns is in a different stage of his career. I think people are still, you know, his fellow players are still thinking, oh, this is a guy we could push around. This is a guy we can intimidate a little bit. I'm not sure we're looking at the same Carl Anthony Towns. I think he's kind of grown up and evolved out of that. Uh, and he's, you know, standing up for himself in ways that we haven't seen before. He's looking locked in in ways that, uh, you know, were difficult at, during stretches earlier in his career. And that progression, given his just raw nat- uh, natural talent, uh, I think is big for that franchise. And it's big for the sport, frankly, because, you know, I think if he's that kind of ferocious uh, just monster night in and night out. That's a you know top ten player, top eight player, and uh, you know he's still tried to work his way into that conversation these last couple of years for me. Two other quick things before we wrap up with our Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. Uh, Orlando crushed Philadelphia last night. I- I've just been underwhelmed by Philadelphia all year. I know that their record's fine. Uh, they're seven and four, but if you kind of dig into them a little bit, they were down eight going to the fourth quarter. I think in Atlanta they were down. They've just kind of they they they've been flirting with that they're not quite right. They're, you know, they're tied with five minutes left in Detroit. They're down going to the eight with five minutes left in Atlanta. They're down 10 with, in the fourth quarter to Portland and Corkmaz hits that crazy game winner. They were down eight and five minutes left. They lose to Phoenix. They lose to Utah. They lose to Denver. Um, they're two, I think they're two and three against above 500 teams. It doesn't feel like what I thought it was going to be. No, I hear you to a certain degree. How much of it for you is the Ben Simmons factor? Because I think that what I've been hearing is a lot of frustration with him. I'm still a Simmons defender, but on some of these things, like spending all summer talking about how you're going to shoot threes and then coming out and you still haven't attempted a single one all year. Um, you know, his shot chart is like super slanted one direction where there's, you know, more than half the court 
Uh, he's not even looking to score for He hasn't him. taken a uh, shot on the left side of the court as of three days ago. Right. That's a problem. Like, that's a big problem. And to me, it's mental. You know, at that point, you know, it just becomes this thing where, uh, you know, you've, you've got yourself blocked off. You're holding yourself back from being the player you could become. And unfortunately, his role is so significant on that team uh, that uh, he winds up holding the whole team back from who they could become. I'm not out on them yet uh, by any stretch. You know, I, I do think that the the volume of their moves, you know, when you're looking at bringing in a Horford, bringing in a Richardson, uh, you know, slightly new role uh, for Tobias Harris, uh, and then changing a lot of the bench pieces or at least promoting guys maybe who weren't playing as much anymore, uh, you know, previously, uh, that's a lot to work through early in the season. So it hasn't shocked me that they haven't hit the ground running. Um, but I also think that, like, you know, guys like Embiid and Simmons are a little bit more wild cards in terms of, you know, what are they going to be able to, uh, you know, be night to night. Uh, than maybe we expect. I know the league is probably going to change the rule coming up here anyway, uh, but the story out of Memphis today is that James Wiseman, who's going to project to be the number one pick, is declared, uh, has pulled his lawsuit. I, I don't know the story on it. I haven't followed it very closely. The only thought I had was he thought to himself, why am I possibly playing? Like, what am I gaining by playing? And I wonder if part of pulling the lawsuit is just deciding, you know what, I don't actually want to play. I'll be the number one pick anyway. And I just cannot imagine why any of these guys are ever going to college. Man, the system is so broken. It drives me crazy um, that that, uh, that is a logical thing for him to, to say and think. But it's true. When the news first broke, I think, a week or two ago about, oh, you know, he could not be eligible. I had someone, uh, you know, from my company who kind of hit me up saying, hey, we need you to write an analysis of what this is going to do for his draft stock. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> why is it going to affect his draft stock? I mean, this guy's like you know, basically guaranteed top three pick. Uh, this isn't going to change anything. We've got, you know, LaMelo balls all the way over there in Australia playing after, you know, previously going to Europe and playing. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, and then, you know, changing high schools multiple times from California to Ohio. I mean, the whole thing at the highest levels has become, you know, kind of a joke. I'm ready for the, uh, the preps to pro era part two. I say bring it back as quickly as possible. There's been some real momentum towards that. Uh, it should happen here in the next couple of years, but, uh, to me, like just the farce of like going through the motions. Oh, I'm going to go and, and be a student athlete and all that. I mean, come on. Like for these top guys, uh, it's it's been a joke for a long time uh, in terms of their investment at that level. You know, some guys get a lot out of it. There's no doubt, uh, but a lot of guys just don't care and they're just going through the motions. And I think this is an example that just makes that really, really clear too. He is Ben Golliver. Read him in the Washington Post. Get his newsletter. Go to his Twitter account and subscribe to that. I'm David Locke. This has been the Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. Anthony and Adam are with you tomorrow. Should be a great deal of fun. Right now, go find your local or your favorite team's local NBA podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network or tell your smart device to play podcast Rejecting the Screen. Doug Gottlieb is the long-form interview today with Noah and Adam. This has been Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.